Hello and welcome to the podcast for the March issue of The Lancet Neurology. This month I'm joined by TLN editor Helen Frankish and I'm Richard Lane. Helen, welcome. Let's start with a very interesting topic. That's the leading edge, the editorial this month. This is on a really important and interesting clinical issue, the age-old argument of generic versus branded drugs. Why did you choose this topic and how is it relevant within the field of neurology? With the need to control the rising costs of healthcare, policymakers are under pressure to cut the amount they spend on drugs in order to make savings. And one way of cutting the drugs budget is to replace expensive brand name drugs with cheaper generic versions of these drugs. And we're focusing on this issue this month because the debate about generic substitution of drugs is going on in many countries at the moment. And last month in England, the NHS began a three-month consultation to seek views on plans to automatically substitute brand name drugs with generic drugs in primary care. And in terms of how this affects neurology, there are concerns that some generic versions of anti-epileptic drugs might not be therapeutically equivalent to the branded version of the drugs. And this puts patients at risk of having breakthrough seizures or other adverse events. And the problem with anti-epileptic drugs is that they have a very narrow therapeutic range, which means that concentrations of anti-epileptic drugs in the blood have to be maintained within a very narrow window for them to be effective. And even very subtle changes in the concentrations can increase the risk of poor outcomes. And the consequences of breakthrough seizures can be really devastating for patients with epilepsy. They could lose their driving licence or their job, for example, and seizures also carry a risk of physical injury. And Helen, of course, there are pros and cons, aren't there, both to for patients and physicians concerning branded versus generic drugs. Do you want to just run through some examples? Well, the pros of generic drugs, obviously, are that they are cheaper than branded drugs, and many patients do have their seizures controlled very well by generic drugs. But the crucial issue is that patients must stay on the same version of the drug every time they refill their prescription. So if they're taking a generic version of a drug, each time they get a new prescription, they should take the same generic version of the drug. And the same goes for a branded drug. But problems can occur when patients are switched from one version of a drug to another, say from a branded drug to a generic drug, or from one generic version of a drug to a different generic version of the same drug. And the regulatory agencies have very strict standards for the bioequivalence of generic drugs in relation to branded drugs, but studies to determine bioequivalence between a generic and a brand version of a drug are done in only small numbers of healthy volunteers and may not be generalisable to patients with epilepsy. And also, the pharmacokinetics of different generic drugs aren't tested against each other. And so switching from one generic version of a drug to a different generic version of a drug can be particularly problematic. And presumably, Helen, another issue is different countries around the world will have different laws, different guidelines. So therefore, the practice of physicians and pharmacists can vary enormously. That's right. And in the consultation that's going on at the moment in England, anti-epileptic drugs are mentioned as a class of drugs that could be excluded from automatic generic substitution. But in other countries, automatic generic substitution of anti-epileptic drugs is already occurring. So in the US, for example, although rules differ from state to state, clinicians can stipulate whether prescription of a particular brand of drug is necessary. 
However, in practice, whether or not a patient can obtain a branded drug is determined by their insurance company. So some insurers might accept a physician's order that a particular brand of drug is medically necessary, whereas other companies might only allow patients to receive a branded drug if they pay thousands of dollars per month in co-payments, which essentially means that branded drugs are out of reach for most patients. And in Australia, um, doctors can forbid generic substitution of anti-epileptic drugs, but this order might be ignored by pharmacists who receive financial incentives from the government to dispense generic drugs. But I guess, Helen, the main issue here is the absence of quality research that can actually inform and guide practice at a kind of worldwide level. That's right. And as you say, there's, there's very little hard evidence. There aren't any randomised trials of generic substitution, and such trials would be very difficult to do, given the um, numbers of different generic versions of drugs on the market, and also the ethics of switching treatments in patients whose seizures are already well controlled. And experts believe that generic switching is likely to be a problem only for a subset of patients who are more susceptible to variations in concentrations of anti-epileptic drugs. And in the US, the NIH is currently reviewing a study that aims to investigate whether such a subset of patients exists by investigating bio-inequivalence in an enriched population, i.e. patients who have experienced problems in the past after switching from branded to generic drugs. So what is your bottom line after all this debate? What is the Lancet Neurology saying, concluding on this issue? Well, we're not opposed to the use of generic anti-epileptic drugs. And as I mentioned earlier, many patients do very well on generic anti-epileptics. However, more evidence is needed before we can be sure that automatic switching from branded to generic drugs can be recommended. And until good evidence becomes available that generic substitution is safe, doctors should err on the side of caution and always make sure that patients take the same formulation of their anti-epileptic drug. And also, anti-epileptic drugs should be excluded from any sweeping policies to promote automatic generic substitution of drugs. Thanks, Helen. And let's also discuss briefly a research article. And this concerns a drug, natalizumab, for the treatment of multiple sclerosis and its possible association with a virus called JC virus, which I understand is associated with another neurological disorder. Have I got that right? And what is the, the clinical issue here, Helen, that's been investigated? Well, in patients who take natalizumab for the treatment of multiple sclerosis, there's a risk of developing a condition called progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, or PML for short, which is a demyelinating disease of the central nervous system. And PML is an opportunistic infection that is thought to be caused by reactivation of the JC virus, which is a common polyomavirus that's thought to be present in about half of the adult population. And PML is a very rare complication of natalizumab treatment. To date, um, there have been 31 cases of PML worldwide in people taking natalizumab, but there's no treatment and it can be fatal. Thanks, Helen. Just summarise, if you would, the methodology and the key results from this study. So in this study, the authors aimed to better understand the association between JC virus and natalizumab treatment by investigating changes in JC virus replication 
and immune function in patients who had received treatment with natalizumab. And they assessed blood and urine samples for the presence of JC virus DNA, as well as immune responses to JC virus in 24 patients who were treated with natalizumab and 16 patients who had been treated with interferon beta. And samples were tested before treatment and at regular intervals after onset of treatment for up to 18 months. And the results essentially were, were negative. So in patients treated with natalizumab, the researchers didn't detect JC virus DNA in the blood at any time point And concentrations of JC virus DNA um, in the urine were stable over time. So there was no evidence for reactivation of JC virus in these patients. However, they did find increased T-cell responses to JC virus and other viruses up to 12 months after starting natalizumab treatment. And the findings are in contrast to those of a study published a few months ago in the New England Journal, which did find some differences in JC virus DNA in the urine and blood over time, although the methods used in the two studies were different. So how should we interpret these findings, Helen? Well, it's difficult to make firm conclusions from this study because it was small and none of the patients went on to develop PML. But it does provide new insights into the biological activity of natalizumab. And in the linked comment um, that goes with this study, Richard Ranserhoff from the Cleveland Clinic is similarly cautious. He suggests that for non-specialists, the take-home message is that several groups are asking the right questions. So what effects does natalizumab have on JC virus replication and immunity? And such research, he says, should enable risk-benefit estimations to be based on more and increasingly reliable numbers and therefore help clinicians make informed decisions. Thanks very much, Helen. And finally, any other content highlights you'd just like to point out to us? Just to mention, really, that we also have some really excellent reviews in this month's issue. We have a review on antithrombotic drugs for patients with ischemic stroke and TIA by Graham Hankey, a review on prevention and acute management of migraine by Peter Goadsby, and finally, a review on combination therapy and multiple sclerosis by Jeffrey Cohen. Excellent. Well, many thanks indeed, Helen. Those are some of the highlights from the March issue of The Lancet Neurology. Many thanks for listening. We'll see you next month.